It's an interesting passage. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but do you remember how we began to look three weeks ago at the story of King Saul? The people of Israel, you'll remember, had looked around them and had seen how all the other nations were led by human beings, human kings, and they thought, well, here we are. We, we are not led by such a king, a monarch. We desperately want to be like everybody else, and so they begged for a king, and they got one. Things got off to an awesome start as newly appointed King Saul won some epic battles and uh, went around, as I said that first week, all Arnold Schwarzenegger-like, or maybe I should say Tyson Fury-esque. You know, this guy's knocked out in the 12th round, he's lying flat on the canvas, and yet he can get up like the Terminator and say, I'll be back. Well, Saul was like that. And you can imagine, they were winning so many battles and doing so well, everybody in the nation thought, this guy's awesome. And they fell in love with him, and they would, they would follow him to the ends of the earth. They thought he was absolutely amazing. But then last Sunday evening, we began to see what happens when things don't go so well under Saul. Israel got into a tough spot, do you remember? And we talked about that temptation that we all know well ourselves, that when we get into a tough spot, we think to ourselves, oh, blinking neck, it's down to me then. I better sort this out myself. And we talked about how sin, the Bible understands sin at its root, is when our heart says, oh, I can sort this myself. I can do this my way. And that's exactly what Saul did. Rather than wait and trust God's guidance in a particular set of circumstances, you remember that Saul, even though he'd been specifically instructed by God through the prophet Samuel to wait and to hang on and to hold back, no, no, he went headstrong. And he thought, well, blinking heck, I can do this my way. Let's just get on with this. And at that very moment, Saul, although still reigning as king of Israel, from that very moment on, this guy's legacy would never be what it would have been if he'd stuck to obeying God. And I guess what we learn fundamentally in that scenario is that sin has consequences. That's a reality we can't escape. You all know that. Some of us here this evening have done some pretty horrendous things in our time. And we live with the consequences of it. And that's the reality. But the wonderful thing tonight is here we are around this communion table. And communion reminds us that because of Jesus and his coming into the world, God graciously provides us with forgiveness when it all goes wrong. That yes, there are consequences. We have to live with those consequences. You can't necessarily just wipe the slate clean. You have to live with some of those things you do or say or think wrong. But God provides a way for us now to be reconciled to him, to be forgiven, and through ongoing grace in bucket loads, 
to endure through those consequences and hopefully to learn from them. That's what being a Christian is all about, isn't it? You know, there are consequences for my sin. There are consequences that other people have to live with because of my sin. And the ultimate consequence would be that I would be separated from God forever. But here I'm reminded God's sorted that. Although I still muck up, by his grace, he forgives me. He restores me. And he helps me continue to walk with him. Now, the big mistake that Saul made is that he decided to go to war without waiting for God's approval and guidance through Samuel. And tonight, things couldn't be clearer. Tonight, God tells King Saul, well, now then, go to war. There it was at the beginning of that passage. You all heard it in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Don't spare them. Now, that's pretty intense stuff, eh? This is the God of the Old Testament that a lot of people have a lot of problems with. And let me tell you a little bit about the Amalekites, shall I? They're an interesting bunch. They're worse than anybody you've ever met from Swansea. (laughs) They're a, a brutal, brutal people. They had history with Israel. Back from when Israel was finally freed from years of oppression and slavery in Egypt. You can read about their history back in some of those books like Deuteronomy. The Amalekites were absolute barbarians, preying upon the weak and the vulnerable. And you might remember how after Israel had crossed the Red Sea, they were uh, encamped in Rephidim. They were thirsty. They were without water. It was a barren location in in the middle of the Sinai Desert. And God miraculously provided water for the people to be able to drink. And while they were still at Rephidim, recovering from their journeys and from their travail and from their thirst, in come the Amalekites. Without so much as heed or warning, they launch a vicious surprise attack upon them. No warning, no reason. It wasn't like the Jews had designs on Amalekite territory or anything like like that. Heck, if you look at the geography, you'll, you'll know that the Jews weren't even heading anywhere near the Amalekites. They just came in, attacked Israel when they were at their weakest and at their defenseless, most defenseless. And so here we are now. It's 1 Samuel 15. It's a culture that's very, very different from ours today. It is pre-Bethlehem. It is pre-the cross on Calvary. It is pre-an empty grave in a garden. It's pre-all of that. It's a culture very different from anything we can identify with. And God chooses to wipe out this group of sheer evil. And he speaks to the king, the one he's installed, because the people were so desperate for this human leader. And he speaks to Saul and he says, now, go. You attack the Amalekites and you totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Don't spare them. Now, the key thing there, this is God speaking. This is God's 
instruction. This is God's war. We often hear that phrase today, don't we? A holy war. You hear that when people talk about, you know, Muslims and things? Here's a holy war. Because this isn't Saul's war. This is God's war. God gives him a very specific instruction. Notice there, there is to be no benefit to Saul. There's no thing to be gained at all by the king or by the nation of Israel, apart from the fact they won't have this enemy thrashing about anymore. So the battle isn't about King Saul. It's not about his kingly rule. It's not about his ability in battle. It's not about his fantastic ability as a military strategist or analyst or anything like that. This battle is God's battle. You go, he tells him. Attack the Amalekites. Totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Don't spare them. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Saul knows what God wants him to do. But Saul, in the heat of the moment, thinks he knows better. Did you spot it? As we go on, this is what happens. By the time you go to verses 8 and 9, Saul took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Whoa, 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 hang on. Just go back. Go attack the Amalekites, totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Look, in the space of, from verse 3a to verse 8, they're already disobeying. Do you see it? This isn't what the Lord had said. This is not what God had instructed. It's pretty clear. Destroy everything that belongs to them. Don't spare them. You think I know a bit better than God? Take Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Do you see it? In a sense, Saul does, yeah, what God wants him to do. He takes out the Amalekites, but he chose to do it his way. I did it my way. The saddest and most ironic song at a funeral you'll ever hear. It grieves me when people ask for that song. Saul takes the best of what he sees, keeps Agag, or whatever his name is, as a prize to gloat over, rather than doing things fully God's way. Do you think you can pick and choose what you do when God gives you a specific instruction? Love your enemies, says Jesus. Or, easy to love this one and that one, but can't love them. Show good to all who are in the company of faith. Well, it's all right to do it to them and them, but they're an awkward so-and-so. You fast forward several days later in the story, Saul and the Israelites are celebrating their victory. They're pumped. The adrenaline's flowing. They're feeling pretty good about their achievements until Samuel shows up. Oh, blinking neck. Awkward. Plot twist. 
Here it all is, dear Samuel. Remember, hotline to God. You wanted to hear from God, had to go through the prophet. Okay? So here he is. Saul sees Samuel and he says, Lord bless you. I bet he did. I bet he did. Lord bless you. Oh my gosh, what's going on? Keep smiling. <laughs> I've carried out the Lord's instructions. <laughs> Samuel responded, What's this bleating of sheep by you then? You can just imagine it, can't you? Is it in the background? There's a little meh. <laughs> or is it he's literally walking through dozens of sheep? Bah, 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 bah. I don't know. But you can imagine dear Saul's face as soon as Samuel said that. What's this bleating of sheep in my ears? What's this lowing of cattle that I hear? I bet it was awkward. It was awkward, all right. Saul reasons that his men took the animals. Did you notice that in the story as Trevor read it? To be a sacrifice for God. Oh, we kept the best because this was going to be for God, you see. And Samuel reminds Saul of God's clear instructions and asks him one last time. Oi! It's left out in the Hebrew, but it's there. <laughs> Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder? It's a great word, isn't it? Hey, I love that. Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? What the flipping heck are you playing at? Quote, unquote. Saul responds again. Oh, he did obey the Lord. He only took from the Amalekites to offer a sacrifice to God. And Samuel's response is gold. And it still echoes several thousands of years later to you and me. When we are filled with excuses for why we cherry pick what we'll do when God tells us to do stuff. And why we dress it all up with religious acts and everything. And God says to us, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen. Obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. Stubbornness is bad as worshipping idols. So because you've rejected the command of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. God wasn't looking for a religious act. He was looking for an obedient heart. A heart that trusted him. A heart that would no longer say, Oh, I can sort this out my way. Know this tonight, my friend. You can fool some of the people. All of the time. But I'm telling you now, there is a man in heaven tonight. And his name is Jesus. And he sees your heart, and he sees my heart. And he knows the truth about us. And we can go through the religious motions, and we can dress things up and cherry pick, and do this and not do that, and this suits me and that doesn't suit me. And you can laugh it off and have great pretense about it, and it can look on the surface as if everything's absolutely fine with you. But the truth is, 
God sees the heart. And he knows the truth. No amount of religious acts or partial for show obedience will ever cover that up. When it comes to an obedient and submissive heart, it's clear, isn't it? King Saul has failed. In fact, this whole king thing looks like a complete mess. And Samuel, dear Samuel, he's absolutely grief-stricken. And then God speaks. I don't know about you, I... I felt that word that Pastor Tim brought to us this morning, that was a heck of a message. That beautiful, timely reminder, it was awesome that in the mess and the misery, joy can be ours. Here it is again. Here it is again because of God's actions. What we're going to see now is that as the story carries on, I deliberately didn't ask Trevor to read on to chapter 16 because there's a big reveal coming. You see, everything right now is a mess. Saul has not obeyed God's instructions. He has not followed out the letter of God's instruction. He has cherry-picked what he will do and won't do, and God has had it with him. He gave him very specific things to do. And he didn't do them. And the easiest thing for God now to do would be to walk away from the nation and say, stuff you. You want your blinking king? See where it got you. But here's where God breaks through. Here is where, as Pastor Tim reminded us this morning, amongst the mess and the misery, God works. King Saul has mucked up big time, but God works. Look at this. Chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You see, basically God is saying, okay, Saul got it wrong, but look, I've got plans. Yes, this whole situation's an unmitigated mess, but I just need somebody whose heart is open to me. Saul had known all along what God had wanted him to do. It was as clear as day. He knew that. But he blew it because he thought he knew better. He chose to believe, I can do this far better myself. And when confronted about his sin, as we saw last week, what did Saul do? He blamed, he excused, he justified his sin. And we do the same, don't we? Of course we do. Why? Because we always believe, oh. I thought I knew what I was doing. And so Saul faced consequences for choosing to believe that lie. He lost his dynasty, he lost his lineage, and if you know your history, you know he lost his kingdom. Saul tried to live out the life God wanted for him, but all the while believing in his heart, I can do this better my way. 
When it comes to having a relationship with God, when it comes to following Jesus, we can't follow Jesus and believe in our heart. I can do things my way. The Bible knows that. In Proverbs, is that lovely proverb in chapter 14, there is a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. How many times in your life, how many times in my life, have I thought, oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know what to do. And then blinking act, it bites you on the bum. Because we get it wrong. And often we do things and we live to regret it. We live with the consequences of our sinful actions. Our way leads to death. Doing life our way gets us not only a life without God, but also an eternity without Him. That's what Christmas and Easter are going to remind us about, isn't it? Remember, sometimes the worst thing that can happen is that God actually gives us what we want. So let's take a moment and look at God's way. Because the truth is, friends, the world is filled with people walking around saying, I can do this my way. I can live life the way I want. What if that's true for anybody here tonight? Whether actually that's, that's the way you live. Well, you know, numero uno. Nobody else is going to blink and do it for me. I'm going to live this life, squeeze every ounce that I can out of it, and get on with it. There's a problem with that. Look around you. Because the consequences of everybody living like that are plain to see. People at loggerheads with one another, killing one another, selfishly pursuing their own ends, and by any means. Every single one of those people believes honestly that they can do things their way. And the result? Well, the result, the Bible tells us, is spiritual death. The ultimate and greatest consequence of trying to do things our own way is that catastrophic result that leads to an eternity outside of God's presence. And I have to say with all my heart, I, I don't want that for anybody. I don't want that for anybody here at Moriah tonight. I don't want it for anybody listening to this on a podcast. I, I don't want that for anybody in Risca. I don't want it for anybody in any of those ministries that we're involved with throughout the world. I, I honestly, I don't want it. But if you perpetually believe that you can do things your way, that's the reality. That's the consequence. And yet we come to this. To communion. On the first Sunday in Advent, 2018, here we are, about to break bread and drink wine. Or oh, let's, let's not use this as a religious act now. Let's be very careful why we do this. Because if you think for one moment there's something magical going on here that is going to kind of purify you and get you sorted with God this week, you are sadly mistaken. In John's Gospel, we're reminded that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Communion reminds us of that reality. That if you are sitting here tonight, reaching that point where you've tried to sort things out yourself, you've tried to live this life and squeeze everything out of it that you can, but there's still an emptiness inside. There's still a, a hollow feeling inside of you. I want to say to you, you come to this table and you understand what Jesus has done for you. Because he can give you life in its fullness. If you're wrestling with something tonight because you, you know you haven't obeyed God's instructions. You've cherry-picked. You think you could have done it all yourself and yet the reality is you sit here tonight and you understand, maybe for the first time, I've blown it. Well, come. Come to this table. Come and eat. Come and drink with me. We're all in the same boat. We're all mucked up. We've all done stuff we shouldn't have done. But here, here we're reminded God loves you so much. He doesn't want you to spend eternity away from him. He doesn't want you to be separated from him. He wants you to know the joy of his presence. The thrill of his forgiveness. And that satisfaction that comes from knowing you are following the plans he has for you. Come. Because you're weak. Not because you're strong. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards. Not because you've done some fanciful religious things. Thinking, heck, I went to Bible college. You think that makes me any better? Sadly not. Come. Because you love the Lord a little. You long to love him more. Come. As you are. To receive that which you could not do for yourself. That which a baby born in Bethlehem did 33 years later when he hung upon a cross. And see again amongst the mess of your life the joy that can be yours. For Christ is born in Bethlehem. And that's the thrill for us this Advent season.